Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. My guest for this episode is Howard Chudikoff, the George L. Littlefield Professor of American History at Brown University. Howard has written about the urban and social history of the U.S., as well as the history of sports and leisure. He has also served on the Athletics Advisory Committee at Brown, and he was for many years the university's faculty representative to the National Collegiate Athletics Association. As he explains at the start of our interview, it was in that role, while attending the annual meetings of the NCAA, that he was led to research and write the book we're discussing today. Changing the Playbook, How Power, Profit, and Politics Transformed College Sports, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2015. Howard admits that there have been many books about the commercialization of American college sports. But his book takes a different approach by taking a historical view of the turning points in college athletics over the last 70 years. Howard shows how these key events off the field, such as changes in NCA policy, acts of federal legislation, and even Supreme Court decisions, have been significant for the growth in prosperity and power for college athletics programs. For anyone concerned about the problems in big money college sports, Howard's book is a reliable, accessible, and illuminating look at how the current system came to be. Here's our interview. This week's guest on New Books and Sports is Howard Chudikoff. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we typically ask our guests to say a few words of, of introduction. Uh, you are a longtime uh, member of the history department at Brown University, and uh, you've done research and also teaching in, in sports history. And so I'll ask you, uh, uh, where did your interest emerge in, uh, in, researching, in researching sports history? And you can tell us about some of the work that you've done. I've been a social and cultural historian, an American historian, for all of my career and focused on a number of other things in American culture other than sports. But I guess as a sports fan and uh, someone who's been teaching about sports for already over a couple of decades, um, I have, have had a long interest in college sports. I also, for the last uh, 16 years, have been Brown University's faculty athletics representative to the NCAA, so I've seen the operation of sports a little bit from the inside out. I'm very active uh, with the athletic department at Brown and then also 
I have served as faculty advisor for a number of our Division One varsity teams. So uh, put all those things together, and that gets me to my interest. So I'll ask you to explain a bit of, of your role as the faculty representative to the NCAA and also the faculty advisor. I, I think for, for people who are fans of college sports but don't work in a university setting, um, they might be unfamiliar with, with these roles. So what in, in your role as a faculty representative of the university, uh, what did you what kind of meetings did you take part in and activities with, with the NCAA? The NCAA requires that every member institution have a faculty athletics representative who has a number of formal duties and then can do a number of other things informally. Formally in Division One, where Brown is, the faculty athletic representative has to review eligibility of all incoming athletes. Um, because I'm at Brown University, which is an Ivy League school that doesn't have athletic scholarships, I don't have to do that. It's the eligibility is for athletic scholarships. But mainly what the athletics representatives do at all the divisions, one, two, and three, is to try to oversee aspects of student-athlete welfare and academic integrity and things like that. And we get together for a national meeting every uh, early November in a different site every year for meetings of the whole uh, association of faculty representatives to go over common issues and problems. And then we have breakout sessions by divisions, which also go over uh, new developments, problems, uh, and particularly NCAA legislation, new legislation for the year, which then sometimes can be quite extensive, and and the faculty members try to get their uh, voice heard in the consideration of some of these rules changes and other things. And so you spent years in these positions, both uh, on campus at Brown and also serving uh, as a representative to the NCA. And so clearly you have a sense that this is is valuable and important work. In other words, that the faculty advisory roles in college athletics aren't simply uh, formal necessities, kind of holdovers from, from the old days when faculty had greater authority over college athletics. You've seen that these positions do uh, the role of the faculty is still uh, important in college athletics. I think it definitely is, especially because college athletics takes place in an academic institution, and we're always trying to maintain the quality of the academic side of the institution and to bridge, make bridges between the academics and the athletics uh, side. The faculty athletics representatives, uh, I would say over the, the period of time that I've been serving, have increased their influence within the NCAA because we've managed to wedge ourselves into a number of the major committees of the different divisions and of the association, the NCAA itself. So the voice of faculty is heard and needs to be heard. Uh, for practically everything that goes on. Well, so you then come to this book uh, from these two different directions, one as a historian of sport and the other as, as a faculty representative to the NCA and a faculty advisor within, uh, within Brown. Um, how did those two approaches complement each other in, in your research and writing of the book? Well, the book was actually inspired at a meeting of the faculty athletics representatives that I attended about what would it be now, seven or eight years ago, each year at the uh, annual meeting, there is a keynote address by someone who has had some importance in the field of uh, college sports. And uh, this particular year, the keynote address was presented uh, by um, a Cedric uh, Dempsey, who had recently stepped down and retired as executive director of the NCAA. And the theme of his um, speech was, I think he said, the five major 
turning points that had occurred in college sports during his eight or ten year tenure as the uh, executive director of the NCAA. And he mentioned some important things that I found to be quite interesting, but it provoked me, the speech provoked me to think about, well, what would I consider to be the major turning points in the history of college sports? And as a historian, I went back and thought about them and came up with about seven different turning points. And I thought, well, this would make an interesting theme for a book about the history of college sports. And if I especially use a historian's perspective, not only to identify and analyze turning points, but to think about how things might have been different if the turn had gone in a different direction. So uh, that's what I set out to research, and that's what led me to the final product of this book, Changing the Playbook, How Power, Profit, and Politics Transformed College Sports. And what kind of source materials were you able to use for the project? Use a variety of source materials. I used the archives of the NCAA. I used uh, contemporary newspaper reports. I drew a lot of information from um, works that had already been published. I would say that my book is one of the first to combine a number of different uh, turning points and events in the history of college sports, but I benefited greatly from a number of works that already had been published on different aspects of the things that I was uh, researching. So uh, I tried to build upon the work of others as, as well. All right. Well, let's turn to your book, Howard. Uh, as, as you said, it's it's a study of these different turning points and and taken as a whole. It's it's a history of the commercialization of, of college sports. And, and you focus on the decades since the Second World War. Uh, to start, though, I want to ask about the, the origins of college sports and the commercialization of college sports. As, as you say in the introduction to your book, the link between amateur collegiate sport and profit has has a long history. So can you say something about that to start, please? The very first intercollegiate contest, which was a rowing race um, between two eastern schools on a lake in New Hampshire, was sponsored by a railroad as a means to promote the railroad and to sell tickets. So there was a commercial link to college sports ever since the origin uh, 165 years ago or so. And although the college sports originated as a student activity, a student-run activity, an extracurricular activity, as a way of asserting uh, student independence and a way of creating a diversion from the uh, academic lives that they were leading. And so it's not simply... uh train companies who saw the benefit or private companies who saw the benefit of, of linking with college sports. The universities themselves also saw uh, something to be gained in terms of revenue or, or even profit from sponsoring college sports, correct? Right, but not at the beginning. When mm-hmm. students ran it, they did it for their own benefit. Um, but very quickly when they started to sell tickets in order to raise money for uniforms and travel and things like that, then the uh, sports became uh, linked to revenue, which then began uh, commercialization. And it's striking then looking at the early history of college sports, well, I would say in the early 20th century, how the issues that we see today, uh, principally this question of how do we pay players, how do we pay coaches, um, these were present throughout. Yes. I mean, you have to understand that sports as a competition uh, involves winning and losing. And in this country especially, the notion of victory is so inherent in our sports uh, that it becomes victory at all costs. 
And winning at all costs means doing everything possible to uh, promote winning by hiring trainers and getting equipment and recruiting the best players. And, of course, since the very beginning of college sports, cheating as a way to try to uh, beat the other guy. But um, also, of course, the issue of who is eligible to play, given that the sport is being sponsored by an academic institution that is supposed to promote amateurism, means that the, there's this disconnect between the goal of winning at all costs and the notion that the athletes are amateurs, meaning that they're playing for the love of the game uh, ahead of everything else. This country especially has never been able to resolve that contradiction between amateurism and professionalism, between playing for the love of the sport and playing for victory at all costs. And one of the early issues you discussed as well in your introduction is uh, the the structure or the system by which uh, college teams or universities regulated their college teams. You talked about the tension between having a central authority regulate college sports and then leaving it to the universities themselves to regulate their teams. That's right. Um, not only, it, you know, as I say, it started out run and organized by the students when the students were spending too much time away from their studies to do it then the institutions stepped in to try to regulate the sports first the faculty and then the administration but as sports became became bigger and more money involved the institutions tried to take greater control but then as competition spread and rivalries uh, arose. The next step was the formation of conferences, and until really 1950s, it was the conferences, whether it was the, the Big Ten or the uh, Southeastern Conference, that really had the major power in the administration of college sports. The NCAA was only a an organization of members that conferred with each other, that tried to standardize the rules and offer advice about the running of sports, but it had far less power than the conferences did. So let's look at the uh, the main part of your book, moving away from the introduction, uh, which which starts with 1949 and the early 50s, and this is one of the the turning points you talk about, uh, the abolishment of something called the Sanity Code. So I'll ask you, what was what was the Sanity Code, and why was its elimination so so important for the subsequent history of college sports? Throughout the early 20th century, there was very little um, uniformity in how or whether college athletes were uh, rewarded or uh, given subsidies for playing a sport. Some schools, some conferences outlawed subsidies. Other conferences and schools allowed subsidies for athletics. But the anomaly or the contradiction came when it turned out that these were supposed to be students and should they be treated any differently from other students? Should they be awarded scholarships simply because they were good at a sport regardless of their need or regardless of their academic merit? So some uniformity was attempted by the NCAA in 1949 to pass what was called the Sanity Code that would tie all athletic uh, subsidies to need and academic merit, making athletic scholarships on the same basis as all other scholarships awarded to non-athlete students at universities and colleges. But then the Sanity Code didn't last long, correct? No, that's right, because a number of schools, especially in the South, didn't like to be regulated in that way. They wanted to award scholarships 
for athletic skill uh, in order to help their teams win games. They rebelled against the sanity code and eventually forced the NCAA to drop the restriction that athletic scholarships needed to be tied, needed to be awarded on the same basis as non-athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. That would be, so then uh, the athletic scholarship itself becomes routinized, becomes accepted in the uh, college sports realm in the 1950s, making a new turning point, a major turning point, that now in at least the larger schools, athletics gets separated from academics in the way that the uh, participants are subsidized. And we should should say prior to that point, prior to athletic scholarships, players had been getting paid or subsidized. Uh, it just varied in terms of, of the methods. They might have a job on campus or off campus uh, or some type of, of scholarship, correct? That's correct. Or they might have been paid under the table by supporters, alumni groups, or local people uh, so that they would play for a particular school. Uh, which, of course, was often deemed to be illicit or uh, inappropriate or immoral or whatever have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned earlier that, that prior to uh, the 1950s, the NCAA was, was, um, uh, it was not a powerful institution. It, w- it basically served to um, maintain uniform rules for the various sports. Uh, but in your opening chapter, which, which covers the early 1950s, you do write about the emergence of the NCAA as a more powerful um, player in college sports. And at the same time in that chapter, you write about the efforts of other bodies, including accreditation commissions, to press for reforms in college sports. And, and it seems that these two currents are interconnected, that the problems in college sports in the 1950s lead to the NCAA claiming more power. Is that correct? That's correct. The NCAA is a membership organization that's consisted of a number of institutions that pay dues to the to the association and thereby also surrender certain powers to the association. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to that in the 1950s, but through the efforts of a uh, single individual, Walter Byers, who became the first Executive director of the NCAA, his personality and his uh, savvy, he was able to consolidate a lot of the power into the NCAA, especially by using money from uh, TV contracts and also by getting the association to agree that uh, there could be tighter rules enforcement with some penalties for those who violated the rules. At the same time, there was always this belief that college sports were getting out of control, that too much money was involved, that there was cheating, that schools were recruiting uh, athletes who really didn't qualify to be students, and that there were some uh, a lot of practices that the purists uh, at the uh, highest levels didn't like. And various efforts were made by both the American uh, uh, Council of Education and by the various accrediting agencies to um, try to stem some of this uh, out-of-control activity and try to control college sports, especially the scholarships and making them still trying to make them awarded on the basis of financial need and academic merit. But the NCAA, through shrewdness and outmaneuvering, was able to beat back these efforts by these other groups. Yeah, and this was something that that was striking to me, that right away in this first chapter, and this it continues throughout the book, is how institutions outside of, of college sports, and really institutions outside of college football, uh, whether faculty councils at the university or accreditation bodies or even the courts, have been 
basically powerless to stop the uh, the amassing of wealth and the changing of rules to benefit college football programs. Well, that's correct. There were some lawsuits during the 1950s that relate to issues today because if the, the main question is if you were giving someone financial aid or financial uh, any kind of financial award on the basis of their ability to play a sport for the school rather than their academic merit, does that make them an employee of the school and thereby eligible for all kinds of benefits of a workman's compensation, of a pension, of medical coverage, and various and other uh, kinds of uh, possibilities. And generally, through a couple of landmark lawsuits in the 1950s, the uh, courts ruled that the athletes were not employees of the institution and therefore uh, were not eligible to all, for all these other benefits. And that put gave great power to the colleges and universities, uh, power that is now, we can get into this later, but power that is now being challenged again by a number of lawsuits against the so-called amateurism of college sports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you had mentioned briefly in looking at the the rise of the NCAA, you had mentioned television. Um, and so I'll ask, how was it that the the emergence of televised sports in the in the late 1950s and 1960s, how did that uh, um, help the NCAA in establishing its authority in college sports? Between 1951 and 1984, the NCAA was able to negotiate contracts with the networks for the telecast of college football games, the weekly uh, football games, and these contracts uh, gave the money to the NCAA, which then distributed the money to those schools that were participating in the weekly games, Uh, but not until the NCAA took a cut for itself out of these TV contracts, and it used that money to expand its staff, to expand its headquarters, to pay its uh, employees, and so forth. So it was able to build up its own revenues through these TV contracts and through the control of the negotiation for them. And you had a you had a closing date for that period of what was it 1984 1985 and uh, I think it's been the case since then as you write about in your book that that uh, um, money for or money from television has become something of an instrument that the schools and the conferences have now used against the NCAA. That's correct, because as more and more TV money became uh, available, a number of the, especially the big-time schools, uh, chafed at having to abide by NCAA rules about who could play on television, and they began to mount a uh, movement against the NCAA, claiming that uh, it was an unfair monopoly under antitrust law and challenged the NCAA in a landmark court case in 1984 in which the Supreme Court ruled that indeed the NCAA was using monopolistic and antitrust uh, practices to uh, unfairly control who was on television and the Supreme Court released uh, any, all these schools to negotiate their own TV contracts, and eventually, after that decision, the NCAA gave up on its control of uh, football broadcasts. Mm-hmm. It maintains still the control of the Division One college basketball tournament that's going on right now, what we call March Madness, and the NCAA does reap millions and millions from that contract. There's a $10 billion contract now with a number of TV stations that gives the NCAA uh, the money 
although the NCAA does then redistribute that about 90% of that money to its members um, in Division One, but it no longer controls football broadcasts, uh, and it never did control all the other kinds of basketball or other sports contracts after 1984, the NCAA basically got out of the, uh, or at least reduced its participation in the control of the broadcasts of college sports, uh, except for the March Madness basketball tournament. And I was going to ask about that, the, the, the development of these two different models. So uh, with the money, the revenue coming from the men's basketball tournament, so March Madness, which which we're in the midst of right now, uh, there is something of a fair, to use that word, fair distribution of the revenue, whereas with college football, it's, it's basically a system where the rich get richer, correct? Um, yeah, I, that's true in football. Um, although any school that wants to can negotiate its own uh, TV contracts, but it's a matter of what the market will bear and where the interest lies. But certainly, as we know, the Big Ten has its own football network. The SEC has its own football network. All the major conferences have their own football networks. Uh, Notre Dame has its own uh, football contract with NBC. University of Texas has its own football network. But they're also, uh, so, you know, they get millions of money from, um, millions of dollars from broadcasts of their athletic events, but even a, a small and uh, conference like the uh, Ivy League does get, have uh, some of its games telecast on small cable networks and gets a little bit of, of money from that. Uh, let's let's change directions a little, Howard. I, uh, you have a chapter on on the integration of college football and basketball from the from the nineteen fifties to the the early nineteen seventies, and and I'll ask what was the what was the record of the NCAA on the uh, the racial segregation in college sports? To my knowledge, the NCAA did not have any policy and did not do anything to promote integration. This was done on an institutional basis, one by one, um, across the board from the early 20th century in the North through the 1960s and 70s in the South. This is always seen as an institutional matter because it had to do with who was admitted to the institution to start with. So the NCAA has never interfered in uh, institutional admissions policies except for uh, trying to establish academic standards for those who become eligible to play varsity sports. And so then what motivates uh, teams and universities to uh, finally uh, admit black players onto, onto rosters and into the universities is really the, uh, the drive for wins and competitiveness, correct? Exactly. I mean, two issues. One, of course, is social pressure, especially in the 1950s and 1960s when uh, integration was becoming such a, and civil rights, a major national issue. But the fact that uh, there were athletes out there with high skills and high ability that could help a team win, and those athletes... uh, tended to be people of color, then it became in the school's best interest to admit them and to bring them on to the athletic teams in order to help them achieve success. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also devote a good amount of attention to the expansion of, of women's sports in, in the wake of the uh, Title IX legislation in, in 1972. And uh, today, of course, the NCAA features women athletes prominently in its in its publicity materials. Uh, women's athletics is, is typically presented as one of the virtues of the entire college sports system. Uh, but this was not always the case. As, as you write... The NCAA and and male sports administrators at universities across the country were not supportive of Title IX and tried to undermine it for years. After that was one of the most interesting things that emerged from my research, because the the common assumption is that. 
Title IX was passed as part of the uh, Education Act of 1972, and people date the expansion of women's sports, especially at the college level, to that particular uh, year, when in fact, for the first 16 years of the existence of Title IX, it really had a very rocky history because, for the first of all, a number of schools simply resisted and never uh, tried to abide by uh, Title IX and to start women's uh, different women's teams and to uh, recruit female athletes. And there was actually uh, quite serious attempts to thwart Title IX, including by the NCAA, when um, a number of uh, schools and administrators felt that they couldn't afford it. They they didn't want women's teams because they would then would have to share their budgets with women's teams, especially the teams that were threatening big-time football and basketball. So uh, a number of different parties tried to resist Title IX, and in fact um, there were legal battles over how Title IX or whether Title IX should be enforced. And uh, 1984 tended to, turned out to be another landmark, uh, a landmark year for another major Supreme Court case, which essentially took all the teeth out of Title IX when a little school in Pennsylvania sued uh, the federal government saying that Title IX did not apply to it because it didn't accept federal funds and therefore did not have to uh, allow uh, for any of the enforcement of Title IX. And the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, agreed, saying that Title IX did not apply to an entire school that did not accept federal funds. So it took the federal U.S. Congress in 1987 and then uh, passing over the veto of President Reagan in 1988 to pass a new law that would make Title IX enforceable to an en entire school. The issue was if only, if, whatever, if only one department or whatever department in a school accepted federal funds, only that department would be subject to the rules of Title IX rather than the whole school. Uh, it had to do with the language of Title IX as what constituted a program and what constituted an institution. But it was really not until 1988 that Title IX really had a strong force to it and after that date, then more and more schools were forced to uh, expand their women's programs and to abide by the rules uh, and the provisions of Title IX. So looking, Howard, looking at the 1980s, uh, this was, well, one thing throughout your book is, is it's clear that there have been numerous crises and scandals in, in the history of college sports decade by decade. But, but the 1980s in particular were a low point. And, uh, and when you looked at, at the 1980s, do you have the sense that the NCAA responded well to the, the crises and the scandals during that period? Did they, did they actually address the problem? Problems in college sports, or did they sweep problems under the rug? I don't think they swept problems under the rug. There were a number of scandals of uh, in recruiting, in uh, academic fraud, and in the cheating for uh, the outcome of games. And the NCAA, I think at the time, did not have full investigative um, resources to deal with these things. A lot of these things came to light as a result of newspaper and other media investigations and uh, resulted in some time in certain exposés that, and then NCAA investigations and penalties. 
But the issue is, and it's sometimes exaggerated, but there is some degree of truth to it, that the NCAA seemed to be more reluctant to pursue and investigate scandals at big-time institutions where the budgets were extensive and the influence of the schools and the conferences were powerful um, so that a lot of the scandals that the NCAA uh, penalized were at lesser schools where the NCAA authority could perhaps have more weight. A lot of these schools, and this has been the case ever since, that when a big scandal erupts at a big-time school that has uh, an athletic budget, not only in the tens but the hundreds of millions of dollars, these schools usually can uh, hire the kind of legal counsel that can... Um, undermine what the NCAA wants to do in penalizing. And the NCAA, I have to remember, is not a court of law, does not have subpoena authority, and doesn't have the kind of police power that a lot of people ascribe to it. Mm -hmm. So its ability to investigate and then to pursue and prosecute these different uh, frauds and scandals is not as great as some people say that it uh, that it has. Yeah, yeah. So that would be a good explanation for why we see North Carolina playing in the Final Four this year in basketball. <laughs> that's, that's possible, although, you know, <laughs> I just read an article where Mark Emmert, who's the, the uh, CEO of the NCAA, says that in a, the... Uh, results of the NCAA investigation into academic fraud at the University of North Carolina will be announced soon. But what that will result in, it still has to go to a compliance committee that would determine if penalties are necessary or to be imposed, um, what will happen when that uh, is made public, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, interestingly, the major penalties that have been uh, imposed on schools as of late have been for um, academic failure rather than for uh, other kinds of of cheating and and fraud. You know, the University of Connecticut was prohibited from being in uh, postseason basketball tournaments because... It's the academic scores of its players were beneath the standard that had been set by the NCAA, and the penalties then were agreed upon by uh, all of the participants. Uh, Howard, we're we're getting close to the end. I want to ask, when we look today at college sports, we see the enormous power of athletics departments. We see uh, the the skyrocketing salaries of coaches, particularly in football and basketball. The amount of money that comes in, but also in many cases, the larger amount of money that's spent. Uh, in, In looking at your different turning points, can you point to a particular moment in the recent history of college sports that that has opened up this this vast entertainment industry that we see today? I think it would be the 1984 decision that freed the schools to uh, negotiate their own TV contracts because so much money now comes from these television contracts and be, and that other revenue streams result from exposure on TV, whether it's uh, corporate money or whether it's the money that comes from the sale of apparel and other insignia goods, whether it comes from contributions from alumni. Uh, I think 1984 really had, was a big watershed. So it was the watershed that then led to, with the expansion of ESPN and and these other networks, it allowed for the schools to bring in the millions that that they would. 
I, I would want to. I, I, I don't want to leave you though without saying that two major factors that we have to consider when we're thinking about college sports today. Number one, and we could go into this, but there probably isn't time. That even though these schools make tens of millions and even hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, their sports, they very few of them end up really profiting. Mm -hmm. They end up spending more than they make. And the reasons for that we could go into. But I want to point out one other thing about college sports that people often overlook. The 65 big-time college sports uh, schools probably have um, maybe about... Well, it's, if we do the math, uh, probably about 30,000 athletes. There are over 450,000 athletes at NCAA member schools, meaning that the real college sports takes place not on the basketball court of March Madness and not on the football field of the football championship, but in the swimming pools, the softball fields, the lacrosse fields, the wrestling arenas, the gymnastic mats, all across the country. Those are the real college athletes. We should always remember that the vast, vast majority of college athletes are not the ones who leave for the pros after one year, who are looking for more money, who are the ones who are involved in the academic fraud and all of the rest. That's a good that's that's a good case for college sports. I'm going to go back to your first point though yeah. about the uh, the fact that so many programs, other than I think it's what 20, uh, uh, actually um, uh, lose money in in athletics. The big programs and uh, something I was re- uh, thinking as I was reading your book. So it's it's a history of the commercialization of college sports, uh, bringing in media, uh, looking at the the political connections and so forth. In, in looking at uh, the current landscape of college sports, major college sports, to clarify, uh, looking at the cur- current landscape of major college sports, is it sustainable, in your view, the, the amount of money that, that schools spend in this? And you use the term in this arms race that we see now uh, as, as schools are chasing after television money and, and so forth. Do you see this as, as a sustainable path that universities are on? I sometimes think it's not, but... I have to look at it realistically, and that is as long as schools that support or that house the these uh, sports enterprises, as long as they're willing to subsidize their college sports, and they do, yeah. tens and twenties of millions, uh, they make up for these deficits, then it is sustainable. Uh, and it's been very, the history of reform in college sports for 150 years has shown that, you know, the, it, it's, the durability of big time college sports is quite remarkable. And I'm not sure that I see any change in the near future, no matter how much, uh, people decry it. Now, the real change could come. In the next few years, not from college presidents, not from the NCAA, not from alumni, but from the courts, because there are still in the pipeline of the of the courts a number of lawsuits that challenge the whole amateurism of college sports, that challenge the whole financial um, foundation of college sports that could make it very difficult to sustain the current model. But on the other hand, judges, too, have proven that they really like college sports the way they have always been, and they may find ways still to to, uh, sustain the current model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll ask you this. uh, There has been discussion about... um, uh, the the future of the NCAA 
uh, particularly as as the big money football schools uh, want greater and greater autonomy. So as someone who is within the NCA in terms of its discussions, um, what do you see as, as the long-term uh, prospects for, for the organization? Will the NCAA survive or will the, the powerful football schools finally, and something you show in the book, is they repeatedly threaten to break away. Do you yeah. see them eventually breaking away? I don't anymore. About three or four years ago, when I was at a faculty representatives meeting, uh, I asked uh, Mark Emmert, the current head of the association, I said, in five or ten years from now, do you foresee that these five power conferences Mm -hmm. might break away from the NCAA and start their own association? And he actually admitted, saying it might happen. But since then, there have been a number of developments, especially those in which the power conferences, now called the autonomy conferences, have gotten pretty much what they wanted from the association. Now makes me feel that the NCAA will sustain itself, uh, at least for the near or maybe middle future because it still has the money from the March Madness tournament. It, more importantly, no breakaway group of schools is going to want to do what the NCAA does in terms of running and organizing the championships in all those sports that I mentioned a minute ago that the 400-some thousand college athletes across the country are involved in. The power conferences, I don't think, want to uh, run their own gymnastic meets. They want to run their own swimming championships. I don't think they want to run their own uh, softball championships and all of the rest. So if they were to break away, then they would become just simply basketball and football conferences. And I frankly feel, and I could be wrong about this, I frankly feel that they can't compete with the pros in this way. People say, well, you know, why shouldn't they be just as minor leagues for the pros? Why couldn't they be follow the pro model where their athletes would either be part-time students or not students at all but would represent the school? But I just think that the professional model is too strong and that the college model is too strong, that people really like the idea that even those who are playing football for the University of Alabama or playing basketball for the University of North Carolina are somehow students or somehow representative of the institution that they, that they as the public feel some sort of connection to and that if they broke away and became semi-professional or professional, that connection would be broken. You've been listening to an interview with Howard Chudikoff about his book, Changing the Playbook, How Power, Profit, and Politics Transformed College Sports, published in 2015 by the University of Illinois Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you're interested in. And if you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at newbooksports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. Thank you.